I want to do something this morning uh, that I don't think I've done uh, ever in 25 years of preaching. And maybe at the end of this, you'll say, I, I don't think you should ever do that again. But uh, I want to study with you one word uh, from the scriptures, one word. And it's one word from the Bible. It's a Greek word because the New Testament, the portion of the Bible written after Jesus came, was written in Greek. But it's the kind of Greek word that sounds pretty similar in English and Greek. You can figure it out pretty quickly. And the word is apostolos. Apostolos. Let's just say it together. Apostolos. That's the noun. And the verb is even easier to figure out. It's apostello. Apostello. And if you're feeling particularly smart and savvy, you may I know where this is going. Um, it's simply the word translated, or actually transliterated, into the English as apostle. Apostle. And I want to think with you this morning about this word and this reality of what is an apostle or apostolos. Um, the word is usually just translated into English as apostle, but it can often be translated as well as messenger, as messenger. And I want to focus on this one word because the meaning of this one word is critical to understanding two things. One word, two things. The meaning of this word is critical to understanding Christmas and the Great Commission. Apostolos is critical for understanding Christmas and the Great Commission. Of course, Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, God becoming the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus bringing hope and peace and joy into the world by being born, living a perfect life, and dying a sacrificial death, and rising from the dead to triumph over our number one enemy, death. That's what Christmas is all about. And the Great Commission is the mission that Jesus gave to his church after he had been born and lived and died and risen from the dead. After Jesus rose from the dead, he said to all of his followers, in words that should be more and more familiar with you, to you over the years, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the Christ who was sent to us at Christmas time commissioned his church to make students, or they're called here disciples, but the meaning is the same, and followers from all over the globe. That's what we're thinking about this month, Christmas and the Great Commission. And as we think about Christ being born, and as we take up a Christmas missions offering, and we think about what missionaries are, we're focused on Christ, on Christmas and the Great Commission, and I think we'll be helped by thinking about the word apostle or apostolos. So I want to do this by looking at this word in three ways. Here's the first way. I want to point out to you that Jesus was the first apostle. Jesus was the first apostle. I'm going to show you a verse from Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. And writing to God's people, the author of the book of Hebrews wrote, therefore, holy brothers, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest 
of our confession. Now, if you have been around Christianity for any length of time, that's not the normal association we make with the word apostle. We don't tend to immediately jump to Jesus is an apostle. So what does it mean that Jesus is an apostle? Well, here's where we can do a little bit of a dive into what this word means. The word apostle simply means sent one or someone sent. It could be translated as an envoy or a delegate or a messenger. Uh, before the time of the New Testament, you know how words change over time, apostle literally just meant any sent thing. But over time, it began, and by the New Testament especially, it focuses completely on sent people. People who've been sent by someone else are regarded as apostolos, or as apostles. Some scholars, and this will be as deep as I go, uh, tell us that the Greek word apostolos may be related to a Hebrew word that means emissary or sent one. And here's where it gets really important, which refers to someone who's authorized to act on behalf of another and represents the authority of that person. So we're not just talking about, hey kiddo, would you go get me something from the grocery store? We're not talking about that kind of sent one. We're actually some, talking about someone who's sent to represent another, someone who's sent with a degree of authority. Um, so apostle is an official word. It's a word that speaks of an official representative or an official messenger. Let me give you a, a few modern examples. Sometimes when we're in a medical situation, we would give someone power of attorney. So they're not just someone sent out from us, they're someone who actually has a legal ability to represent us in the most crucial areas of life. That's what we're talking about when we talk about an apostle. Or uh, government, governments will send ambassadors, and that person is commissioned or sent by a government, and they have authority to act on that government's behalf. That's the kind of idea we're thinking about when we think about apostle. A great biblical scholar, uh, by the name of Herman Ritterboss, wrote, the apostle, the idea of apostle is summed up in the idea of the expression, quote, the apostle of the man is as the man himself. To deal with someone's apostle is to deal with an authoritative representative of the person who sent them. So, think about that. Consider Jesus... Consider Jesus God's apostle. Now think about the way the Lord Jesus spoke about himself. He didn't use this word apostle, but the idea is there over and over and over in the scriptures that he tells us to consider him as if God were speaking to you himself. Because of course in Christ, God is speaking through to, him, to us. John chapter 12, which keeps coming up in these weeks. Whoever believes in me, says Jesus, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So you get the idea again. If you listen to me, you're listening to my Father. I am an authorized representative of the Father. I am not just someone who was sent on a child's or a fool's errand. I am an ambassador, an envoy, someone with official power to speak to you on behalf of God.
Again in John 12, verse 49, for I have not spoken on, uh, on my own authority. This is Jesus. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus, the King of the world, tells us that in everything he says, he's under authority. This is the apostolic idea. This is what we're talking about. He's coming as a representative, as an envoy. And let me just break this down. This means God wants to talk to us. This is what it all means. It means that God has sent his son at Christmas time because we do not believe in a silent heaven. We do not believe in a world where we have to figure out everything for ourselves. We live in a world where God has sent his son to speak to us about all truth. And if you don't know much about Jesus or Christianity, let me say this. The primary things he wants to point out to us are that we were made in God's image so we're responsible to him and we're glorious like him. We've sinned against God. So we're guilty before God. We could never make our plight better because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And he, as God's authorized representative, has come to die on the cross for sinners to take away the sins of everyone who will repent and believe. And when he says, if you believe in me, you'll be forgiven. And when he says, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. He says it with the full weight and authority of God the Father himself, because he is our apostle. He is the one through whom we hear the word of God. Your conscience is not God's apostle. Your feelings of guilt are not God's last word. God's last word comes to us in Christ Jesus, who comes to us saying, whoever believes in me will be forgiven, and whoever believes in me will have eternal life. So that's the first place we wanted to start. And somebody, when they're talking to each other about Christmas, ought to point out to someone, maybe point out to your children, we are celebrating Christmas because God talks. We are celebrating Christmas because God speaks. We are celebrating Christmas because he speaks through his son and through the entire life of the son from the cradle to the grave and praise God, past the grave in the resurrection. That's what it means for Jesus to be our apostle. Second thing I want you to see about apostles is that Jesus commissioned 12 of them. And in my notes, I actually say he, Jesus commissioned 12-ish apostles, but we'll get there in a second. But he, he commissioned... 12 apostles. Now, how does the word apostle relate to the Great Commission? Well, because Jesus commissioned the first generation, if you will, of preachers, of authoritative preachers, and called them apostles. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 16. It says that in these days he, and the he is Jesus, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now notice that. Not all the disciples were apostles. 
He took some of the disciples and made them apostles. So all the apostles are disciples, but not all the disciples are apostles. He names some apostles, and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So you see here that Jesus takes some from among his followers, his disciples, and he calls them what he is, an apostolos, a messenger, a sent one, an envoy. Jesus was God's perfect and official representative, and these men are not perfect, but they are his official apostolic representatives. In this group of men, we have a band of representatives who planted the first churches. They wrote many of the books of the Bible. They were literally eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. We often say all Christians are witnesses. Yes, but the apostles were literal witnesses in a way that you and I are not. They had literally seen the Lord Jesus Christ and bore witness to what they had seen. Now, as you read the New Testament, I said there were 12-ish apostles. And the reason I said there were 12-ish apostles is because this group of 12 that Jesus appoints during his lifetime changes up a little bit. Judas is the first change. He betrays the Lord, he abandons the faith, and he makes a shipwreck of his apostolic ministry. Good reminder there, no matter what position you're ever given in Christianity, if you don't personally walk with Jesus, you will fall away. There's no office that will hold you to Christ. So Judas falls away not only from the faith, but also falls away from his apostolic ministry. And this is why in Acts chapter one, we find the other apostles saying, how do we replace Judas? And that must have been quite the Bible study. Uh, the early Christians are gathered together after the death and resurrection of Jesus. They start studying the Bible and they get to places like Psalm 109, uh, which is talking about an enemy of, of Jesus. And it says, let another take his office. And they go, see here, we're supposed to replace Judas. And I don't know if I would have got there from the text, but I trust the Holy Spirit was leading them. And they saw that they were supposed to replace Judas. Now listen to the words. Listen to the words of how they replace him. Because when we start to get into this, we start to see that there's actually qualifications for who we would call this kind of an apostle. And the first qualification is that they be an eyewitness of the resurrected and ascended Christ. So... Look at this in, in the book of Acts. It says, so one of the men who have accompanied us, this is the church thinking about who should replace, replace Judas. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. 
And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now notice what happened here. They read in the Bible, hey, the apostle that fell away is to be replaced. They're supposed to be a replacement. I go, well, what kind of resume do you need for that? I mean, how, how do you fill that position? And they say, well, the person who does this has to have these characteristics. They have to have been with us the whole time, from the baptism of Jesus at John right up to the resurrection ascension. Because if they're going to witness to Jesus, they have to have seen Jesus, and they must fill this qualification. And then they look around, and they go, well, there's actually a couple of guys like that. And so since all things are equal, and they've got a couple of worthy candidates, they cast lots to decide which one will be the apostle. And the Lord chooses by lots Matthias. First qualification for an apostle is that a person has seen the resurrected and risen Christ. And you see this in the apostle Paul. He's the sort of 13th apostle, if you will. There's 12 apostles who were originally sent to the Gentiles. A 13th is added in Paul, who's sent to the, sorry, 12 apostles sent to the, the Jews, and then a 13th sent to the Gentiles. And listen to how Paul speaks about himself in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Go read the book of Acts, and there you'll find the apostle Paul, he says, sorry, read 1 Corinthians 9, and there you find the apostle Paul. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now this is very important. Here's why it's important. If you turn on your TV last, later this afternoon, look on just the right channels, you'll find a few more apostles. But what you won't find is someone who meets these qualifications, has actually witnessed the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But in the New Testament text, you actually have the Bible telling us they must have seen the risen Christ. And this was true of the 11 who outlived Judas. It was true of Matthias. It was true of Paul. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection and the ascension. Now, the second qualification is a direct appointment from God. A direct appointment from God. Now, when I became a pastor, uh, the pastoral search committee at Emmanuel Baptist Church um, uh, decided they would lay hands on me, and then later a pastoral search committee or a ordination council decided to lay hands on me, and I, I can see God working through all of that. But it's different, very different, than a direct appointment from God, literally speaking, in the flesh or from heaven. And yet that is what the apostles, or these 12-ish people, this small band of people, actually had. Listen to the way the apostle Paul talks about his ministry in Galatians chapter 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. What seminary did you go to, Paul? I didn't go to seminary. 
Didn't get my commission through any man. Who was on your ordination council? No one. Hey, remember the time that Peter, James, and John appointed you an apostle? Didn't happen. Paul's commissioning was directly from God. He couldn't be more stark in the way he says it. Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And if you read the start of Paul's letters, you'll often hear Paul say things like, Paul and the brothers with me. The brothers with him were not apostles in the same way he was. They had not received their commission directly and immediately from the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people look at the book of Acts. When you have Matthias becoming an apostle by the casting of lots, and you got lots of confused teenagers wondering, can I just roll dice to decide what the will of God is? And you have Christians asking, is it okay just to cast lots to determine the will of God? And people ask, why on earth did they cast lots to decide who would be one of the apostles? That to us seems like a very light thing to do for something that's so important. But what we don't understand there is they had two people who met the biblical qualifications and they had the Bible that tells us that when lots are cast, it's actually God's decision that shows up. The lot is cast in the lap, Proverbs 16 and 33, it's every decision is from the Lord. And when you go to Acts chapter one and ask, why'd they choose Matthias? Listen to these words carefully. You Lord, this is right after they chose Matthias, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two men you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. So you see in the casting of lots, they were seeing that as God actually doing the choosing. They weren't just in a bind, they weren't in a, in a pickle, they were actually doing something that biblically was a way of showing that God was the one making the final decision. So, to be apostle like this band of 12, the person had to be someone who had witnessed the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. They also had to be chosen directly from the Lord. And then third, these men were full of consistently, they were consistently empowered to do miraculous works. Now I believe that God does miracles at all times in church history, and he does miracles through all kinds of Christians. But there's no doubt that the epicenter of his miraculous work in the New Testament wasn't just with everybody. It was specifically on the apostles. The apostles were distinct in their ability to consistently do miraculous works. Acts chapter 2 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You see that again in Acts 4, Acts 5, verse 8. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, listen to this verse, sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. So there literally was a sense in the New Testament, hey, prove to me you're an apostle, and apostles were able on tap, if you will, to produce signs and wonders and mighty works. So let's be clear about something. These men are unrepeatable in church history. 
It's why Ephesians chapter 2 calls them the foundation of the church. They don't just pop up every 50 years or so. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. That can only happen if Jesus appears to you after his resurrection, not because you had an awesome quiet time or you really have a burden for church planting. They, they saw the risen Lord. They were directly commissioned by him. And on top of that, they were able to consistently operate in miraculous power. Now, the reason I'm stressing this, and if you're getting sleepy, come on back. The reason I'm stressing this is because often we will go to verses in the Bible, and Sam Waldron points this out, that are to the apostles and we will claim them for ourselves. So for example, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, to the apostles, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Well, that's true. Every spirit Christian is going to be led into all truth. But go look at that in context. He's promising that he'll lead the apostles to remember what he taught them so that he can write, they can write it in the Bible. Something unique happened in that generation. Something unique happened with those men. Let me give you one example of this, and then I'll move on to my last point. If you look at 1 John, you need to realize that what's being written at the start of 1 John could not be written by anyone who was not one of these apostles. Listen to the way 1 John speaks. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest in it. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. I can never preach a sermon that says what I've tasted, what I've touched, what I've experienced firsthand of Jesus, and anyone who preaches that sermon to you ought to be yanked from the pulpit ASAP. The first generation of apostles were the only ones qualified to do that, and they say that the way they passed that on was by writing down their experiences and witnessing to it, which is why for the last 2,000 years, the church has not waited for new waves of apostles getting fresh revelation, but has glued herself to the apostles' word in the scriptures. That's how that works. And it actually puts us on the most safe ground to realize that Christ is the ultimate apostle. He commissioned apostles who then wrote their witness down. And we now receive that witness from those who did miracles, were directly appointed by God, and had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, we're not done with the word apostle, though. We're not done with the word apostle. We have seen that the word means official envoy, representative, and that Jesus is the ultimate apostle of God. The 12 apostles of the New Testament plus Paul are what we could call apostles of Christ who met these three particular qualifications we just went through. But there are more apostles in the Bible than just Jesus 
and the twelve and Paul. Barnabas, a man named Barnabas, we'll look at him in a second, is called an apostle. Best of my knowledge, he never saw the resurrection of Jesus, but he's called an apostle. A man named Epaphroditus, not directly commissioned by God as far as I know, but called an apostle. A whole group of men in 2 Corinthians are called apostles, not having seen the risen Jesus, but they're in some sense apostles. What is going on? What is going on that these people are called apostles? And theologians have struggled with how to describe these other apostles. Sometimes people will talk about big A apostles, like Paul and Peter, and then little A apostles, like Barnabas and Epaphroditus. And I think the most helpful way of describing these other apostles comes from uh, theologian Sam Waldron. Not a charismatic, in fact, he's written against charismatic theology. Actually, a Reformed Baptist, the most conservative ilk. But listen to what Waldron says. I think it's so helpful. He says, we must make a distinction in the New Testament between those who are apostles of Christ, big A apostles, and those who are simply apostles of the churches, small a apostles. Apostles of Christ are Christ's direct legal representatives. Apostles of the churches are the church's legal representatives, and only indirectly and in a lesser sense, the representatives of Christ. You can see apostles of the churches mentioned in Philippians 2.25, 2 Corinthians 8.23, and we'll go there. In the sense of apostles of the churches, apostles do exist today. A missionary sent out by a local church would be an apostle of that church. A representative sent to a meeting of an association of churches is another example of an apostle of that church. Such persons are apostles of the church that sends them. They are not, however, official apostles in the sense of being apostles of Christ. Now listen. I know that you're listening to this sermon and you are going, man, this has such an immediate impact on my life. And I'm so thankful that you are taking me through this because I can feel the anxiety going away and the guilt being dispersed. And praise God, can the choir get up and sing again? I, I know, I've been preaching long enough to have figured that one out. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't just address your problems. The Bible actually expects us to be concerned with his mission. And thinking about his mission means thinking about how he actually plans for it to be executed. Uh, when, when organizations grow, what happens is you wind up with people who don't know what's going on. So in an early days of a business, the business owner might be the owner, and he might be the production person, and he's the marketer, and he's, and he's just doing everything. But then as the business grows, that same business now has a marketing team, and a production team, and manufacturing. And manufacturing has no idea sometimes what's going on in marketing. And marketing sometimes has no no idea what's going on in production. And it's very easy for that to happen in the church. 
You build up a church and you just tell the Christians, you focus on your anxiety. You focus on your doubts. We'll help you raise your kids. We'll help you walk faithfully as a single person. That's all good. But actually, Jesus wants you to know how the whole kingdom is growing. He wants you to know how the whole thing is functioning. It's not okay to be ignorant about the outworkings of his kingdom. How on earth are you gonna get motivated to give or participate or pray if we're just focused on my sanctification? Here's the thing, the apostle of our faith has come and he has spoken. We have a definitive word from God. And that definitive word from God has come to us through the writings of his apostles. Every single thing you've ever meditated on, loved, cherished, trusted, memorized, came through his apostles who he commissioned. But then he uses the word beyond them. He calls a guy like Barnabas an apostle and a guy like Epaphroditus an apostle. What is going on? What's happening? What's happening is that this idea of sent one or envoy or official representative continues. It goes beyond the 12. There aren't repeatable apostles who write scripture. There aren't repeatable apostles who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ, but the church continues to send out messengers who represent him who are representatives of the churches. Let me show you this a little bit. Philippians 2.25. Philippians 2.25. The apostle Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Now I try to avoid complaining about our English translations. One, because we have very good English translations. And two, because there's far finer translation scholars in the world out there. But I'm going to break my pattern and complain a little bit here. The word messenger here is the word apostolos. The apostle Paul, who calls himself an apostle in Philippians, now is comfortable calling another man apostolos. And he does it in a way that's exactly like Sam Waldron says. He says, hey, listen, I'm going to send you this guy Epaphroditus. He's my brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. And hey, Philippians, he's your apostolos and minister to my need. This guy, Epaphroditus, was sent by you to me. Because the churches in the New Testament were not just focused on each individual's sanctification or just the health of their own congregation, but they were continually sending out to one another others to serve in the broader kingdom of God. And Epaphroditus was one of these apostoloses. Another example, it'll be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 8, very interesting context. 2 Corinthians 8 is about an offering being sent. It's about making sure that the guys sending the offering are not a bunch of wingnuts, not a bunch of loose screws, but they're faithful, godly men. In fact, Paul wants to assure them that the guys carrying the offering are apostolos, that they're the kind of people the church would send. So in 2 Corinthians 8.23, it says, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit, and as for our brothers, they are messengers. Guess which word is behind that word? Apostolos. 
they are apostolos of the churches, the glory of Christ. God sends Christ, Christ has his 12 apostles, and the churches continue this pattern of sending out under Christ's name people who will be good for the building up of the churches and for doing other works in the midst of the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14, uh, verse 14, look at this one. I'm afraid I don't have that one for you, but you'll have to trust me as I read it to you. Acts chapter 14, verse 14. This is during the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. We read, but when the apostles, same word, this time they just decided to translate it apostles. But when the apostolos, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are we doing these things? Do you catch that? Barnabas is now called an apostle. Why would that be? Well, because back in Acts chapter 13, after prayer and fasting, the church had laid hands on them and sent them off to be sent ones. Okay. Well, I've pressed you to the max. Let me apply this for a little bit. Who's the ultimate apostle? He commissions the 12, replaces Judas with Matthias, and adds Paul. All of these, seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. All of these uh, have um, been commissioned directly by God. And then all of these are consistently able to display their divine commission with miraculous power. The church then doesn't walk away from that word out of fear. The church actually keeps using that word apostolos, to describe the people they send out. Epaphroditus, those who are carrying an offering, Barnabas, they're all called apostolos. So let me give you three reflections and I'm going to sit down. First, all apostolic ministry aims to accomplish the Great Commission. The reason the church sends other people out is to accomplish the Great Commission. From the ministry of Jesus to the 12, to the apostles sent out by local churches today, the goal is to make disciples who win people to Christ, to establish local churches, and to advance the Great Commission. Second, and we're getting increasingly relevant to our lives, churches who take, who take Scripture seriously will take sending seriously and joyfully. There's the temptation in every church and in every Christian heart to become ingrown. I mean, let's be honest. We all have lots of problems here. Our lives, our marriages, our families, our culture, our city, our nation. There's enough to deal with right here and more. But the New Testament had those same problems and it did not keep them from sending some of their members out to accomplish the Great Commission beyond their own local surroundings, beyond their own problems. They sent teams out to deliver offerings and leaders to support church planting and teachers out to exercise apostolic ministry to other churches. Emmanuel, you have and you should continue to do the same thing. If you're new to Emmanuel, you need to recognize you are walking into, at this point, decades now, 
of embracing this call to send and to serve. We should send small A apostles to do church building repair in Charleston and small A apostles to build up the saints in Indonesia. And we should send small A apostles to plant churches among every tribe and tongue and nation. We should do this faithfully because it's in the Bible and joyfully because what could be better than sending out brothers and sisters who will shine the glory of God in this crooked and perverse generation. Third, missionary work and church planting work is apostolic work. Missionary work and church planting work is apostolic work. When we send someone out from Emmanuel to reach people in cultures where there is little to no gospel witness, we call them missionaries. When we send people out to ch plant churches in America or Canada, we call them church planters. These are not bad terms, but neither of them is in the Bible. The term the Bible uses when a church sends someone out to start other churches or strengthen other churches is apostolos. And I think it's important to keep that word. It reminds us what is going on. We are sending someone out to be our representative, our delegate, our envoy of this local church. And if we're going to send them out to plant a church or reach a people group, they had better be qualified for that job. This is why we send out missionaries or church planters who are elder qualified and often elder seasoned. If they're going to serve as envoys and messengers of this church who build up other churches, then they have to be qualified for the job. You don't send a first year med student into surgery and you don't send the unqualified leader into apostolic work. I think when we send these leaders out, we should consider using the terms apostolic church planter or apostolic missionary. Why do I like those terms? Because if you just say we're sending out apostles, you give people the heebie-jeebies and they get really freaked out and they think they're gonna find you on that bad television channel later on today. But when you lose the word apostle, you aren't able to help people trace their job description to the actual words of scripture. And I will tell you this, and I don't have time for this in this sermon, one of the greatest problems in the church today is that missionaries and church planters have no idea what their job description is. And when they gather with other missionaries and church planters, they're often fed all kinds of things that have nothing to do with what the scriptures say ought to govern someone who's been sent out's life. But apostolic church planter and apostolic missionary get the idea of, oh, I know what you're talking about, church planter, missionary, but they tie it back to the fact that we are responsible for who we send, and they are our sent ones, sent to represent the theology, the doctrine, and the practice that God has shown us in the scriptures. They remind us that they're sent from us, to be supported by us, they're qualified by us, and while they may join another church or elder board in the course of their ministry, like Peter did, you can see 1 Peter 5, they're connected to us. They will often report back to us and be prayed for by us. They are exercising apostolic ministry that God has given to us. They are given an apostolic ministry that God has given to them through us. Fourth, uh, 
I realize that I'm probably the worst guy at coming out impassioned pleas for offerings with lots of great stories and examples. Every pastor's got his weakness, and that's definitely my own. What keeps me up at night is, is what we're doing biblical. Can it actually be grounded in the scriptures? And there's lots of talk about sending missionaries and the importance of the Great Commission that has, you, you couldn't go to a Christian and say, where'd you get that missionary stuff from the Bible? After Matthew 28, go there for make disciples. They would have no idea what to say. And yet you're supposed to give your hard-earned dollars to it? I don't expect you to do that. Here's what I desire. That we understand that our God is a sending God. He sent his son for us. He sent the 12 to lay the very foundation of our faith. And then he wants us to be ascending people following that pattern. Not just sending out anyone, but sending out actual qualified, worthy representatives. And brothers and sisters, you have 19 units on the field right now who are top notch, God called men and women who love to serve Jesus and who we have watched walk in faithfulness, we should put everything we can behind them. We should keep the wind in their sails. We should be praying for them. When they get in jail or in trouble, we should be praying for their release. When they are preaching the gospel in trouble, we should be sending them notes of encouragement. And this Christmas, we have the opportunity to even provide for them better financially. That's my best attempt to give you the foundation for that, for the word of God. And I pray that God would move in the hearts of his people to say, yes, I want to be all in, in the most biblical advance of the Great Commission that we can possibly be a part of. Lord, we pray that you would please help us to think carefully about your word and to walk according to your word and to give according to your word. And Lord God, that you would let the 19 units overseas right now be just the beginning, that those who are back here for respite, that they might be in due time able to return, that those who have not even be called would be called to be those who are sent out from the church to go where there's less gospel or no gospel and to represent the doctrine and the life of this church and to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.